Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Eugene, I've been on the Apple Podcast Store checking out what listeners think about TikTok. Oh, 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 what are they saying? Well, there's a few comments here from back in May when we were still called Coronavirus NZ, and they're pretty nice. But I'm, I'm actually more interested in what they've said since we relaunched as TikTok. And oh, here's a good one. Mel's Bells says, so glad you are continuing. Honestly, I would have listened even if you were just reading Trade Me listings. Oh, that's nice. And that's not a bad idea, actually. Trade Me, the podcast. But there's also this rather mixed review. Great idea, they say, but, quote, the content is very scripted and robotic. They go on to say the dialogue would be better if it was more natural and didn't sound so put on. I wonder what they mean. Yeah, what is the script to which they allude? Yeah, what is the script to which they allude? Dude, that was my line. Oh, right. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Hey, jokes aside, Adam, is there any way we can find out who that person really is? It's not Ben Thomas, is it? Anyway, Hari Mai, welcome. This is Tick Tick Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Tuesday the 18th of August. I'm Adam Dunning. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Tēnā koutou katoa. We bring you the news and some of the more unusual things about this general election New Zealanders are embarking on. Boy, there's a few of those. And then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. There are 32 days until... Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Give me a minute. There are 60 days until the election. Yeah, so where are we now? Tuesday morning, right? So it's been less than a day since Jacinda Ardern stood up on that stage and announced the election was going to be pushed out a bit, 28 days to be exact. That means we've got 60 days to go instead of 32. And that means there's going to be a lot of scrambling going on as all the political and electoral machinery adjusts to the new target of October 17. Yeah, it's a big deal. But did you notice that even though the Prime Minister acknowledged that it was going to be disruptive and that she felt the pain of the electoral officials and volunteers who had already got September 19 in their diaries, there was no mention of the impact on bedroom-based election podcasters? Shocking. It's a nightmare. I mean, apart from having to get my daughter to re-record today's Days Till the Election countdown, this means we're going to have to come up with another whole month of shows. And election trivia. And another month of waiting for dogs to bark so we can do a hilarious line of unscripted banter. And the flaming wheel of policy will have burnt to the ground. Oh, I've got barking dog. And the flaming wheel of policy will have burnt to the ground. It's almost as if there's some sort of conspiracy designed to... Actually, what kind of conspiratorial goals are served by pushing out the election again? Was it more time for Bill Gates and the other lizard people to arrive by submarine? More time to build 5G virus replicators? More time to buy shares in Big Mask? Hmm, I think it might be better, Adam, if we try to make this show a conspiracy-free zone. Really? But they're so much fun. Yeah, not really. They're actually a reasonably serious threat to our ability to gather and assess facts around the world, then act rationally on those facts, which seems particularly important in times of crisis, such as, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic. But you know all that because you were there when we interviewed the brilliant freelance journalist David Farrier a bit earlier, and he talked about this very thing. This is true. So, yeah, that's what's coming up later in the show, a super interesting conversation with David Farrier of Nightline, Dark Tourist, and Tickled fame. But first, Eugene... What's been happening? Aside from the election announcement, which we'll have more on soon, surely the biggest story of the day was guinea pigs. At the 1pm press conference, when Dr Ashley Bloomfield announced that there were nine new cases of COVID-19 associated with the Auckland community outbreak cluster, 
He listed a new series of places and events where people who have tested positive have been. You know, if you've been at these places at these times and you develop symptoms, etc., you know the routine. There was the Botany Mall on August 11 between 1 and 2 p.m., a fitness class in Kingsland, and a guinea pig show at Auckland Cavie Club between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on August 8. What was kind of delightful was the way that Bloomfield knew this would be something everyone would pick up on, so he kind of got all sing-songy when he said it. It'll be in a meme near you, no doubt, real soon. Health Minister Chris Hipkins confirmed that New Zealand was in discussions to secure coronavirus vaccines if and when they become available. One of these is an arrangement with Australia whereby a Melbourne-based company would manufacture vaccines for both countries and for South Pacific nations. The deal is with the Oxford University AstraZeneca team, which is well advanced with trials for its vaccine. All going well, the team is hoping to begin deliveries of the vaccine late this year. And that, Adam, appears to be it for big news. Oh. Hey, does that mean I can add one more? It's not about the election. It's not to do with the virus. I just like it. Fire away. A seven-year-old boy from Dunedin blew his nose on Saturday and out came a piece of Lego that had got stuck up there almost two years ago. So it's level three in Auckland and I worry that I'm not making the most of it. I haven't bought any takeaways yet, even though they are allowed. I haven't gone for a mountain bike ride at a local beauty spot, even though that's allowed too. I have, however, been wearing a mask when out and about and... I'm all for being as cooperative as possible with government health advice, and they reckon masks are worth using. I'm really taking a while to discover the joy of masks. I mean, they're not mandatory anywhere except on flights, so it's still up to the individual anyway. But I've been slapping on one of those cheap and, frankly, nasty surgical masks when I go to the supermarket or when I go for a walk. And, well, I never knew my breath was so bad. I got a mask from a local company, Cactus Outdoor, which repurposed part of its factory to make them. And though I feel good about having supported local, I just feel claustrophobic wearing it. I wore mine to Countdown yesterday. Weird thing. Most of the customers were wearing them, but several staff members weren't, which seemed odd to me, seeing as they're inside for long stretches and supermarkets are one of the places where just about everyone's paths intersect, right? Even though I'm not really enjoying this surgical mask, I've Got hopes for the future though. I've tracked down a sewing machine, I've ordered some elastic from Spotlight, and well, to be honest, the sewing machine's probably never going to get used. But if I have a sudden stretch of spare time and a burst of creativity, you may soon see me strutting my stuff around the North Shore in one of a range of bespoke handmade masks. Closed borders, economic devastation, Adam on a sewing machine. Extraordinary to think of the impact this virus has had on our country, eh? And extraordinary to hear some of the language being spoken in the New Zealand political sphere, words which you would never have expected to hear in a country which prides itself on topping the Transparency International rankings. Over the weekend, we had various politicians, including the Deputy Prime Minister, no less, suggesting that if the election went ahead as originally planned on September 19, quote, there was no ability to conduct a free and fair election. The leader of the opposition, too, had been questioning the, quote, legitimacy of the election if it went ahead as planned. Wow. Then, at yesterday's press conference, we learned, of course, that Jacinda Ardern had indeed decided to push back the election to October 17. It was a fascinating bit of political theatre, really. So, we asked Stuff's chief political reporter, Henry Cook, to break it down for us. She was on time for a press conference, which is a rarity, and started off just laying out in a five-minute speech or so exactly why she would be moving the election date. She didn't say at the start that she wouldn't move the election date, but if you followed her kind of reasoning and train of thought, it was pretty clear that that was going to be the outcome. 
she decided to light it for a month, and and the reasons she gave were basically that there was a worry about people feeling safe enough to go to the polls right now, given given the uh, new outbreak in Auckland, and there was also a legitimate fairness uh, kind of problem with parties not being able to do their campaigns in the way that they had planned, given uh, a lot of cities and is currently on level three lockdown. She said she was expecting that by polling day, the original original polling day of September 19, you know, Auckland would be out of lockdown, but but obviously it was still a surprise for people that they would miss out on so much campaigning time with that lockdown, and, and she kind of bought into that argument. What she did say as well was that she would not be moving it again. So she moved it to October 17, and basically said, that's it on my end. You know, I will, everyone's on the same boat now. You have time to plan around how this might, you know, might go if the outbreak gets worse. And if it were to be moved again, um, it would have to be moved by the chief electoral officer, who does have the power to delay the election for a short periods on kind of health reasons, even in specific regions. So we, we could technically see a, um, a time when, you know, the election is delayed in Auckland, but not delayed in Wellington. And in that situation, we want to get the election results until all the votes were, were in and counted. In terms of her performance, the Prime Minister used the press conference to kind of retake the narratives um, back off Winston Peters and Judith Collins, who have been talking about this election delay all weekend. She, she laid out her reasons and, and then did her best to to basically say that she was delaying the election because of these health and fairness reasons, not because she felt like it would be illegitimate for her to keep the election at its current date because the majority of the House was against it. Now, now this, this came after, of course, uh, Woodson Peters releasing a letter that he had sent to Ardern, basically laying out his reasons for demanding the election delay. And in the press release accompanying that letter, he made it very clear that he was releasing this letter so the Governor-General would know that the election delay you know, was supported by a majority of Parliament was a kind of clear threat there that he might withdraw his confidence from Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister if she were not to delay the election. Jacinda just kind of um, laughed that off as a, not a real possibility, but uh, you know, it's obviously utterly ludicrous to actually think that she wouldn't have had that in mind when she made the decision. Thanks, Henry Cook. That suggestion about Ardern potentially losing the confidence of the House really was remarkable, wasn't it? So what that is is where a Prime Minister can't muster enough votes amongst all the current MPs to have a majority and you know keep on being Prime Minister. This was hypothetically possible if New Zealand First and ACT and National kind of all ganged up together. The thing is that, sure, Ardern did move the date in the end, but as she pointed out during the press conference, the scenario where those three parties came together to bring her government down didn't really make a lot of sense, since doing so would itself trigger an election. In other words, if parties wanted to punish the Prime Minister for not delaying the election, the most potent weapon they had, that's the vote of no confidence, would have brought down the government and forced the election, which they were trying to delay. So even though it was hypothetically possible as a scenario, it never really made practical or political sense. Exactly, a sort of electoral catch-22. So remember, one of the strongest calls for the election date to change had come from Nationals leader, Judith Collins. Her state of preference had been a November date or even next year. Her language in the aftermath of Ardern's announcement was very careful, I guess you'd say. She put it all back on Ardern, saying, that is her decision. Act leader David Seymour said the change was, quote, the right thing to do. New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters supported it too, and the Greens co-leaders James Shaw and Marama Davidson were like, sure, fine, whatever, let's crack on with it, and you lot, stop undermining the public's faith in the democratic process, please. Hey, in the middle of all the drama yesterday morning, I did hear from the Electoral Commission. Oh, cool, so we had an interview slot with Orange Guy? 
Not exactly. It was just their press release, actually, setting out all the new dates and things and pointing out that now the date has been changed, they can get on with confirming voting places and contacting the 25,000 people who work on the election. No word in Orange Guy, sorry. Damn, because these developments means there are so many more questions for him. I mean, for starters, is he going to get paid extra for the extra month's slog? And also, I want to know if he realises that he's been appearing in steamy online memes. What? Yeah, I... Saw a meme at the weekend where comedian Ruby Esther shared a tweet saying, quote, nothing gets me going like democracy. Don't pretend you've got anything else to do during lockdown and go and roll for this year's election. And with it was a picture of someone approximating orange guy in what we might best describe as a compromising position with a woman. Have a look. Oh, geez. Shocking. Huh. What, what, what? I didn't know orange guy had a hairy chest. Yeah, we really need to get him on the podcast. Okay, time for our new occasional series, I Did Not Know That, New Zealand Political Trivia. Oh, goody. So I remember back in 2017 when Jacinda Ardern took over as Labour leader from Andrew Little and there was quite a bit of discussion about her age and questions, would she be the youngest Prime Minister? Mm-hmm, I remember that. So Ardern was 37 years and three months old when she moved to her office into the ninth floor of the Beehive, but she wasn't our youngest ever leader. Uh-huh. So, our oldest on gaining office, that was Walter Nash, who was 75 years and 10 months in 1975. Okay. And the first woman, that's Jenny Shipley, 1997. What about the first Māori PM? Still waiting. First New Zealand-born PM, that was Sir Francis Henry Dillon Bell, that was in 1925. Got to say, doesn't exactly sound like a good old number eight wire gun boots and rugby racing beer kind of name, does it? Sir Francis Henry Dillon Bell. Exactly. First Catholic, Frederick Weld, 1864. First Jewish Premier, Julius Vogel, 1873. First Freethinker. Meaning? Agnostic, Alfred Domit, 1862. Oh, so we got in there before the first Catholic and before the first Jewish leader. Anyway, so go on, who was our youngest leader then? Well, drumroll, Edward Stafford, who was 37 years and five weeks old, so about two months younger than Ardern. The NZ History site where we got this from describes him as a member of the Anglo-Irish gentry who went to Nelson to farm but soon got mixed up in politics. The way they put that makes it sound like he got mixed up in a gang or something. But anyway, it was just politics. And he was a rival of William Fox. Stafford was known for his work ethic. For much of his stint, he didn't even have a private secretary. Stafford was technically a premier rather than prime minister. So does that mean Ardern kind of was the youngest prime minister to take office? Mm, not really. It's generally accepted that all the leaders of the country are kind of the same things, even though they went by different titles. The very first leaders were known as colonial secretaries, then attorney general with the first seat in the ministry. That's not very catchy. Then from the mid-1860s, premiers, including Stafford. From the early 1900s, the terms became standardised across the empire. Premiers for states or colonies, prime ministers for self-governing countries. So, prime minister was used in New Zealand from 1906. I did not know that. Right, on with the show. David Farrier is a New Zealand-based investigative journalist and broadcaster. He is the co-director of the internationally acclaimed documentary feature film Tickled and creator of the Netflix docuseries Dark Tourist. He's made a name for himself by looking around places people don't often want to tread. And lately, he's spent a lot of time delving into the world of conspiracy theories, things like QAnon. If you don't know about QAnon, it's a kind of mega conspiracy based on the idea that there are hidden, powerful forces running the world and doing lots of bad stuff. It's taken on a life of its own thanks to social media and also some retweets by the President of the United States, Donald Trump. 
David has been looking at QAnon's followers in New Zealand and the way in which they're tied up with the spread of COVID-related conspiracies, theories which last week spilled over into our political mainstream. So here's our chat with David Farrier. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, look, in the past few years, it feels like every conspiracy in history has been wrapped into one weird compendium of conspiracies. So it's hard to tell where one ends and another starts. So we want to talk to you about the sort of subset of that. What are the strands of conspiracy thinking that are becoming a problem in New Zealand right now amid a pandemic and particularly after the return of community transmission? Yeah, I think it's it's a way of thinking we saw when we first went into lockdown and people were beginning to start talking about whether COVID-19 was a real thing or it was just a flu. And also the idea about the advent of 5G and 5G towers being installed. And what we saw over that time was these two different conspiracy theories suddenly combining where suddenly 5G was somehow responsible for COVID. And I think that's like a perfect example of this new wave of conspiracy thinking where one fact is here, one fact is over there, and then they're just combined together into this other thing. And we're just seeing that move at a super quick pace at the moment, driven by this overarching kind of idea of QAnon, which is this mega conspiracy that links everything together. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of thinking I think that's particularly dangerous. And it leads to this this way of thinking where you don't believe one conspiracy theory and then be skeptical about another one. It's like all or nothing. So just before we dig into the details, why are you so interested in the people who believe these things? What I've experienced is I think what a lot of us have experienced is watching people, often Facebook friends and people that we kind of watch at a distance, kind of start to subscribe to ideas that they wouldn't have subscribed to before. And I just find that fascinating, the idea that you can have someone who has previously been perfectly logical about their views of the world and certainly questioned authority in certain ways, but suddenly they're just leaning so heavily into a certain way of thinking that it's deeply unexpected. And the speed at which it happens, which again, we saw it after the first lockdown here in New Zealand, and we're starting to see it again in in an even more extreme way now. Uh, And I just, I, I think it's the the speed of it and the passion that people are diving in that I find really interesting. And it's it's not just sort of one-off people, is it? They're sort of coming together in, in groups and some of the work that you've done is to to analyse who those groups are that are involved in spreading some of these theories and, and the memes and so on. Can you just run us through who they are and, and sort of what they believe and, and also just how big they are? What are the numbers we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing for context is to realize that all of this is linked back to this master conspiracy of QAnon, which has been around for years now. And QAnon is basically the idea that there's this global cabal of elites, um, you know, non-elected officials who are the real ones pulling the strings. And they're the ones that are behind every bad thing on the planet, whether it's 5G towers that are going to kill us, whether it's the mass trafficking of children. And they have this belief in that conspiracy theory that Donald Trump is aware of all this and there'll be this day of reckoning where Trump basically comes out and outs who these people are. 
So that idea has spread so prolifically, first on like the corners of the internet, the chans and then the reddits and then it's sort of on YouTube. And at the moment, it's every Facebook group imaginable. And the conspiracy thinking that people, and especially at the moment, influencers are diving onto, especially with this latest idea of child trafficking on a mass scale, that's all linked back to ideas that started on the internet far before they came upon them. And so what we're seeing in New Zealand is is a recent example. There's this movement at the moment of save our children. And from the outset, that looks like a reaction to the idea that people like Jeffrey Epstein have gained access to underage girls to have sex with them. And he's a rich, privileged man. He's gotten away with all this stuff. Um, But it's now jumped into this save the children campaign where Through the lens of QAnon and conspiracy thinking, suddenly there are thousands of children trapped in tunnels in New York and Melbourne and Sydney. They're being rescued by these vigilantes that we don't yet know about. You know, their blood is being drained for their chemicals because of the fear they felt that's then injected into like Hollywood elites and politicians to make them superhuman. And so this is a little bit crazy, this theory, I just like to say. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's it's really crazy. And, and you know, rewind, say, 10 years. I would argue that, we're, you know, 10 years ago, if, if I started spouting this idea that there are thousands and thousands of children locked in underground tunnels having their blood drained, you would laugh me out of town and I would probably rethink the way that I think about the world. But right now you can jump onto Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and very quickly you'll find a very welcoming community of people who back up every madcap idea you think. And and that's the situation that we find ourselves in now. Mm. And what about particularly the, the COVID response here in New Zealand? There's some people, some groups who are sort of coming together around that. And there are sort of tens of thousands of followers on Facebook. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's alarming to see. And I think it's alarming to sort of see it spread so quickly. You know, we, we saw recently this idea starting to spread on Twitter and on Instagram that the government knew that we were about to go into lockdown again. You know, oh, Jacinda visited a mask factory. We're being warned by health officials that we should think about masks as being a possibility, this idea that we might go into lockdown again. Then, obviously, uh, you know, we, we have gone down into a level of lockdown, and suddenly you've got the deputy leader of the National Party coming up on stage in front of journalists and saying, look, I'm not saying anything, but isn't it suspicious that just into this and isn't it suspicious that this happened and then he's saying like I'm not just asking questions and that's a dog whistle to this whole crowd online that thinks there is a master conspiracy that this has been orchestrated and something that's jumped out of that again recently on social media circles is this idea that the defense force on October 1st is going to put the whole of New Zealand into lockdown we're going to be forcefully vaccinated and that is going around influencer circles when you get someone like Jerry Brownlee suddenly coming on stage and saying what he said, that just backs all of that thinking up. You trace all that back using various data tools that are very freely available online. They all started in QAnon groups with you know 50,000 members that are just full of the most batshit, insane stuff you've ever seen. And yet by the time it gets to the influencer on, on Instagram and the mummy blogger who is saying this stuff, the origin's not clear. Enough people are saying it, then suddenly people start to believe it. It's a really crazy cycle.
So the numbers are big, you're getting tens of thousands of followers for particular groups, but just as a counter to that, is there a danger that we overestimate the importance or significance of these people? I mean, I might be open to the idea that there are microchips and vaccines, but when it comes to the crunch and my kids go to get vaccinated, I'll still do it. You know, are these people who are flirting with it, are they a real problem? There's definitely an argument that social media is not an accurate reflection of reality. And certainly there are bubbles of things that are way crazier on Instagram and Twitter than they would be in real life. But I think you've just got to look to firstly what's happened in the States where you have the president of the United States, who on a given day a couple of months ago retweeted 14 QAnon accounts and heightened their views. Unreal. They're voters. They're the people that are keeping and helping to keep Donald Trump um, in his role. He plays into that. He dog whistles to them constantly on his accounts. You'll see QAnon followers at his rallies. You bring that over to what we've seen in New Zealand recently. And over the first lockdown here in New Zealand, you had Billy TK Jr., a musician who up until just then had been a semi-successful musician, you know, doing his own research online, suddenly becoming very into QAnon. He's now started political party. Jamie Lee Ross has joined up online. They've got more attention than ACT has at the moment. They're getting full meetings when they travel around the country. This has very like real world effects, these people that are completely disconnected from reality. And I think what COVID's done as obviously as citizens, we are being, you know, we're being told what to do um, for our own health. But when that's interpreted as being part of a master conspiracy, so we can all get vaccinated and microchipped by Bill Gates, it does have real world consequences. And just the other week, we saw protests in Whangarei led by um, the public party. Um, no masks are being worn. People are marching around saying we will not be controlled by you. And I think it's super alarming. And I think we need to be alarmed because it's going to get much, much worse. Right. Look, Zooming right out from the here and now, the three of us talking here, we're pretty confident that these grand conspiracies and all the little ones wrapped up inside them are just, well, as you said, batshit. Mm. We know that anyone with any expertise in the relevant fields can easily point out the false claims, dismantle the broken logic. It doesn't take long. We know that the internet has given us more access to primary sources and reliable data than at any time in human history. Yes. So why on earth is this rubbish so popular right now? Uh, I think there are a million reasons, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this, but from what I can observe, I think it is... A lot of it has to do with social media rotting our attention spans and we're not capable of reading a peer-reviewed study anymore. We want to see someone ranting in a Facebook story or an Instagram post for 30 seconds. We want to see some images cobbled together with arrows scribbled between them linking things up. Uh, I think our capacity for critical discussion and even knowing what a good source is is completely out the window now. You know, we're seeing these things, we're seeing theories like Pizzagate, uh, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> um, we, I thought that had died out. We're seeing that at the moment. Kids on TikTok are discovering that for the first time, and they are now becoming exposed to this stuff and getting on board. Just as a quick interjection, Pizzagate essentially is like a, a, an older version of the uh, kids locked in tunnels, but Hillary Clinton's in there too. That's all you need to know, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, kids locked in the basement of a pizza joint. Um, so I think it's this 
you know, the algorithms don't help. Um, I think, Mm. you know, Facebook and Twitter thrive on conflict and they're pushing people further and further apart so that they fight and they comment and they spend more time on Facebook. So that's not helping things. But I think in a very real way, I just think our attention spans are being shortened. People are not educated into what a source is. Things aren't being sourced. All the stuff that you sort of assume as a journalist that you hold true like just really simple things like before you you know like before you believe something too much like get at least three sources you know all these like very simple ideas no one's playing by those rules anymore and i think another thing and i just feel like i'm ranting on a bit but another thing i think is important is the way you know i think people are driven into this way of thinking because of fear and because they don't know what's going on in the world but in a way it's fun and it's a game for them and Mm. it's this way that they you know, there was this thing that was done a lot in the mid-2000s, alternate reality games, and they were used in movie marketing. And it was taking a video game and a, like a treasure hunt into the real world. So, like, Steven Spielberg releases AI, his big science fiction film. On the poster and the credits, there's a mysterious name that wasn't an actor, it wasn't a director. It was just a name no one knew who it was. If you Googled that, it took you to a special website. If you went to that website, it gave you clues and it linked you to like a sound file that you could analyze that then had numbers that led you to like another IP address. And it's like this 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 game that was marketed to people where you could take these clues in real life and join them together. That's essentially what QAnon and this conspiracy thinking is. It's It's telling people that, You can get one crazy little fact and your whole aim with Q is to line it up with another fact and decode it and come up with the answer. And to a certain level, I think that's fun for people and people are loving it. And that's Mm. why they're online spending so much time exploring this stuff because it's Mm. a game. It's Mm. fun. Which is what makes what Jerry Brownlee said last week even, that that sort of feeds into that too, doesn't it? I'm just laying out the facts and then people go away and sort oh, of... Oh, that's why, that's why that's that why was dangerous. so alarming. He practically said, no, that, that whole idea, like, if you start hearing people say, I'm just asking questions or I'm doing my own research, that is pure QAnon speak. And to see Jerry get up there and be backed up by the leader of National afterwards, when he just puts these desperate things together and then suddenly says, hey, are they just facts? <laughs> it's really alarming. Mm. It's, it's terrifying to me. So you've written quite a few pieces about your researchers in the world of doing your own research, so to speak, in the world of conspiracies. Um, Mm. And you've identified that there's a bit of a Venn diagram between religious belief and conspiratorial belief. Can you tell us a bit about that and why that might be? Yeah, you'll definitely find the people generally that are leaning heavily into this stuff, especially the Save the Children, Children Are Being Locked in Tunnels kind of narrative. A lot of them are conservative Christians and it's tricky because I know plenty of conservative Christians that realize this stuff is complete trash. But I think there is this this similar similar kind of type of belief where essentially with Christianity, or my understanding of it, you're essentially waiting for Jesus to come back and the truth to be revealed. And the whole thing and the whole joy of QAnon and this mass conspiracy movement is that you're also waiting for the truth to suddenly be magically revealed. And there's this faith that you have that it one day will be, you know, if you're deep into QAnon, that person is Donald Trump. 
and they're waiting for him to come up and reveal who the bad guys are. And it also plays into that idea that there is an evil fight out there. Like there is an evil that we have to take out, you know, real life. It's, you know, it's very complicated. There's a lot of different reasons people do bad things. It's just a big mess. We're all trying to figure it out. But with this conspiracy narrative, it's so clearly defined as like this big evil force that are out to get us with very simple answers. So with like, instead of looking at child sex trafficking as this incredibly complicated, awful thing to battle, it's like a very simple, it's almost comical. It's like thousands of kids are locked under Central Park in tunnels and there's a rescue mission. And if we get them out, we'll figure out who's in charge and then the world will be okay. So there's a lot of similar ways, I think, to the sort of the magical thinking of organized religion and conspiracy culture. Mm. It actually struck me as I was thinking about that question that there's also one other connection that, you know, through prayer, you are empowered to take part in this. And I suppose with the QAnon world, doing your research is maybe like a sort of secular prayer, really, isn't it? You're going and finding out the things yourself and becoming part of the game. Yeah, you're part of it and you're part of a movement. And I think it's we all like to be part of things and we all like to feel that we have some secret hidden knowledge that no one else has. I think it's part of the joy of being like in a cult, right? It's like you've got something, you've got this thing helping you that no one else has. And with conspiracy theory culture, it's the same thing. Like you've got the answers, no one else does. And that makes you feel special and it pushes you on. The sort of tricky side of it is that ideas spread because people talk about them and and here we are now talking about some of them. And does media coverage or even an interview like this make things worse? Yeah, there's that catch-22 and it's the terrible thing with conspiracy thinking where if you talk about it, A, you're just naturally bringing those ideas to people that never will have heard them before and there's a chance that they actually think, oh, I should actually look into that and they go down the Mm. wormhole. And the other danger is the second you talk out about this stuff, and it's what I've experienced all week, you're part of the conspiracy. So instantly you're kind of screwed either way. Mm. But I think this stuff is spreading so quickly. And again, you just need to like look at the situation in the States. We have a president who's retweeting QAnon content. This is stuff happening like with or without us pushing back. And I think we have to try and report on things in context. And I know, you know, someone like the New York Times in their original reporting, they were not really contextualizing things. They would just sort of report on these ideas without a lot of context around them, which is super dangerous. Whereas now they're making a conceited effort to report on these movements, but with context of why they're happening and in a bigger framework. And they're doing, you know, they're doing podcasts like that rabbit hole thing that really seek to pull things apart. So my thinking is it's a catch 22, but I think we're better to try and put it in context for people and talk about it rather than burying our heads in the sand and pretending it's not even happening. That's media, but for a lot of people, their connection with conspiracy theorists is that they're their friends or their partners or their relatives. Mm. And it would be great if we could get these people to drop these theories because, you know, there are real world harms that can come from it. How do you talk to those people? Yeah, it's, I mean, for one thing, it's really hard, but I, I did, I, I spoke with Mick West, who, um, he's the guy who created Tony Hawk Pro Skater, the series of video games. Mm-hmm. He got really, really rich. He retired, and now he's a full-time conspiracy theory debunker. <laughs> he's, huh. he's written this amazing book called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, which is about just that. How do you talk to your family and friends that have suddenly become lost in this stuff? And I guess my takeaways from him, like, number one, you can't get angry and you can't scream. 
You shouldn't engage in Facebook comment wars because that will never work. You kind of need to be in person with people and you need to like, you need to sort of like see like where your ideas line up and if they do. So if I was talking to someone who was fully entrenched in this stuff, I would say to them, hey, like I definitely believe there are some real conspiracy theories. I'd acknowledge that. Watergate's a real thing. I'd look at 9-11. I'd be like, yeah, you know, from where I stand on that, I think that was used as an excuse to invade another country. You, you sort of put your cards on the table. And then a thing you can do is a thing called steel manning, where you explain the maddest conspiracy theory they have back at them, but better than they can. <laughs> so you study up on it, you understand it, you get the arguments, you put yourself in their shoes and just pretend that that's something you believe. And if you can explain it back to them, A, it shows them that you know more than they do. And then you can sort of just start pulling it apart from there. Like you go in explaining it as strong as you can and not like knocking it off at the knees. And then you slowly pull back and in explaining it, you can sometimes reveal like how ridiculous it is. And that's especially works for when you're mm. getting into things like kids being trapped in tunnels and their blood being drained to give to Bill Gates, that kind of thing. Right. You don't need to say that's silly. It's just the silliness will <laughs> be self-evident. It just becomes apparent just in stating it. Exactly. You don't tell them it's stupid. You just, in explaining it, sometimes you can just reveal it. And another thing which someone said to me, Travis View, he has been following QAnon since the start. And he pointed out this really obvious thing that, that I hadn't really clocked. And that is for all the discussion people are having on these crazy conspiracies, they've done nothing. Like it's helped no one in the real world. <laughs> like if you look at who revealed all the pedophilia within the Catholic Church and who revealed what Jeffrey Epstein was doing and got him sent away, they were all journalists who were working incredibly hard. There's not one QAnon follower or one person ranting at you on Facebook about whatever they're ranting about this any given day that's actually led to any real world change. And I think that's good to remind people of as well. So that's the media, that's regular folk, but there's another group that probably want to get people off their conspiracies. So there's a recent stuff piece quoting someone saying the government needs to build a kind of conspiracy busting response into its virus busting response because, you know, this really could undermine the COVID-19 response if we've got conspiracy people throwing away their masks. So how does a government do that when the heart of this mega conspiracy is that the authorities are lying to us? Yeah, I think it's pretty hopeless. <laughs> I, I I don't see a way that it can it can be done. I mean, there are some situations overseas where there are programs run every other night that just rubbish conspiracy theories. It's like public broadcasting. Mm. And I think if we were living in the days when people all watch TV religiously and everyone watched a big show, I think something like that could work. But the trouble we've got is that we're battling this stuff over social media and over people's private personal channels. So if there was going to be some kind of program, it would, it would have to be big. They would have to pour like a lot of money in. It would have to reach out super wide and it would have to be huge. I, you know, I don't think it even helps when at a press conference, people, you know, journalists are saying, hey, what do you think about this conspiracy theory? And for, for 20 seconds, Jacinda will say, look, that's clearly not real like that's not helping if we need if we need to do a program that's much wider than that it needs to be so so big and it needs to be such a big campaign and i just i don't see how it could be big enough to actually cut through mm. it seems like the conspiracy theory like the virus is like you say going to get worse before it gets better so 
Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about all this, David. No, that's okay. And just, yeah, stay sane out there. It's a new way to be viewing the world and we're dealing with a lot of people who are not dealing in reality anymore, which is always a very strange place to be. Absolutely. Thanks, David. That's the Tick Tick Podcast for Tuesday the 18th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Henry Cook, Catherine George, Patrick Coots and John Hartevelt and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. And if you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back later this week. He konera.